0: you know, whenever there is, uh, you know, a mega trend, a lot of ideas which are not really great also ride on the success of that mega trend. It's a rising tide lifts all kinds of ships. So I think different people in the world see climate change differently. Their stakes are different, their perspectives are different and therefore getting them to all collaborate is not very easy. So I think you need to find solutions without looking for, you know, 100% collaboration. Sometimes it happens in life that certain strengths of yours do not find an outlet for a very long time in your life. You can go through decades and certain one or two of your strengths, which you're amazingly good at, there is no outlet. So for me also, in some ways, there was no outlet for my ability to think with clarity and communicate with clarity.
1: Hi, my dear listeners. Welcome back to yet another episode of Inspire Someone today. We are joined by another Inspirer who is no stranger to the startup ecosystem, an engineer MBA and found his con the startup ecosystem and is a successful author and many more hats he wears. We'll figure that out what it is uh, during the course of our conversation. It's my absolute joy and pleasure to welcome Hari on Inspire Someone today. Thank you, Srikant. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Hari. Hari and startup ecosystem goes hand in hand. Uh, we cannot have a conversation without uh, discussing about the startup ecosystem why, where you had a ringside view, Hari. In the past few years, you have played various roles, the latest being the CHRO at Big Basket. And in today's world, a stint at the startup seems to be a badge of honor. Is adrenaline and adulation exerting what is it on the other side of uh, being part of the startup system? What gives it the high? What are the lows? Uh, just walk us through this uh, brimming ecosystem that is happening all around us in India.
0: Yeah, the startup I think ecosystem has been around for a while. You know, we had first generation entrepreneurs who set up several of, the, of these iconic uh, IT services companies, whether they're Infosys or uh, you know, Wipro uh, or Cognizant. So many of these, or almost all of these, were set up by first-generation entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial ecosystem is not particularly new to India. It's been around for a while, except that in the last 15 years, I think a different genre of uh, startups got built and funded out of India. Those that uh, began focusing on solving uh, many of India's wicked problems. Prior period, I think uh, many of these IT services companies focused on solving the problem of high labor costs in the Western world by leveraging um, low-cost talent from India. So I think what changed was uh, we had very young and brash entrepreneurs. Brash is, I'm using that in a very positive way. Entrepreneurs trying to solve many of uh, India's wicked problems and they were funded by a new genre of VCs which were willing to bet on India's problems being solved very profitably. So I think in the last 15 years, we've gone through multiple cycles uh you know cycles of hope cycles of despair cycles of ups and cycles of downs i think we've gone through all of that currently we are seeing a funding winter we are seeing that there's a lot more focus on you know creating profitability vis-a-vis just growing the top line there's a lot of you know focus on building some real businesses which uh take a while to build it's not easy to build and scale uh, all kinds of businesses in the vc model because the vc model relies on Rapid scaling of businesses and many businesses are not amenable to rapid scaling and therefore not amenable to the VC world itself. So I think the ecosystem is learning a lot of lessons uh, in the process. And I hope that uh, after this funding winter, you know, many lessons would have been learned. And the fundamentals of building a business which is um, run them sustainably and profitably will get reinforced in a very big way, you know, in the next uh, year or two.
1: I think interesting points are the one is the market induced changes that we see happening to the ecosystem, then the funding induced changes and scaling, sustaining, valuation, value creation has been the mode of a lot of the startups, so to say these are the hot topics of the industry. What's your take on this? How much of it is value creation versus valuation? What does the future of the startups uh, look like?
0: Yeah, the way I see it is that, you know, whenever there is, uh, you know, a mega trend, a lot of, uh, you know, ideas which are not, uh, great also rise as with that mega trend. It's a rising tide lifts all kinds of ships. I would say that, you know, some businesses are very amenable to being built via the VC model and some businesses are not very viable to be built. For example, we have had uh, training companies um, which have been a cottage industry of sorts for many decades. Now what is happening is that uh, some of these edtech companies are trying to, you know, use the same idea about education and trying to create very large companies. Sometimes I feel, you know, probably... Uh, you know, this entire industry of education is not amenable to one or two or three large players emerging very rapidly. I think, uh, the building them, the cottage industry way where there will be place for hundreds of these companies is probably the right answer. But the VC industry has tried to build it, uh, in a manner that it will create two or three winners. We are seeing this in the property tech space also. For example, there were so many of these property tech companies, housing.com, for example, Nestaway. We had uh, broker, no broker or broker, um, you know, exchange. I don't remember the names also, 99 Acres, Magic Bricks. Actually, none of them are profitable. In fact, a couple of them have already shut down and have been acquired in the fire sale. So I would say that, you know, some of these businesses probably are not very easy to build, you know, in the typical VC model where one or two large uh, companies emerge and these are profitable companies. I think, uh, you know, the traditional way, of building many small boutique uh, businesses are in this space is probably, you know, the better way to build small profitable companies. So I would say that no, we are learning our lessons very rapidly, which is we are figuring out what kind of businesses can be, you know, fueled and bankrolled by VC money and what kind of businesses are best not bankrolled by, you know, VC money. So we are learning our lessons, I would say, from that perspective.
1: We are learning our lessons, you did touch upon pretty uh, pertinent points here, infusion of uh, VC money, the rise of a lot of these organizations, some tend to rise with the tide and with the whole growth spectrum in mind. What does it do to the culture and people in this organization? Are they victims of this rapid growth or would they be able to accelerate their skills, accelerate in this ecosystem. what What is your take and what is your recommendation for people in the startup, both the founder leadership community as well as uh, the employees working in the startup in terms of culture, in terms of skills to hone in?
0: I would just begin by saying that no one is a victim because all of us are adults who made a conscious choice of working for startups when we all had choices working for much larger and more mature companies. So we are all aware of what the consequences are because um, startups are risky by the very nature of their definition, the very nature in which they are built. And many startups, you know, may not ever attain product market fit, may not ever sometimes get the next round of funding and therefore may not scale and grow profitably as a result of which from time to time. Many of these startups are likely to right size, downsize, let go of people more easily than mature companies. So that's par for the course. To me, nobody's a victim, and uh, you know, culture in companies which are growing very rapidly is built very differently from culture in much larger companies. So I think this is par for the course. Um, and my suggestion, if you ask me, is that people should work for startups for the right reason. If they're expecting stability, if they're expecting, you know, their life to go on happily without the ups and downs, they're expecting that, you know, their uh, career would be one, you know, single trajectory without the ups and downs, then startups are not the right place for them. The Mm -hmm. reason they should join startups is that they're looking to build something and they feel that uh, they're going to enjoy being a part of the building out journey and are prepared to deal with all the consequences of uh, rapid scale and rapid growth. So I think people who are all working for startups, whether they're founders or employees, are adults making very, you know, rational choices, making sensible choices. And I think, uh, you know, once you make a choice, you have to be prepared for all the consequences around the choice.
1: That's a great call out, Hari. And you yourself was on the other side of building startups, a few successful, successful ones as well. Share your insights being part of Big Basket, how it was built and to where it is today. What are the key learnings? What are the key takeaways from your own experience?
0: I would say, you know, the key learnings are that uh, once you get the product market fit, then it is very likely that you are going to grow. Whether you grow rapidly, when will you turn profitable? Those are interesting questions. But if you get a product market fit, which means that it's a product that the customers love and are willing to pay you a price that will make your business profitable in the long run. To me, that's product market fit. So I think, uh, you know, once you get your product market fit, it's a question of you figuring out how to grow and scale the business. So I think companies like Big Basket, they're solving a real problem, which is they got a product market fit, which is there was a genuine need for convenience. And people were willing to pay whatever it took to get that convenience of home delivery of grocery. So grocery shopping, you know, wasn't an exciting thing for most people. They did not just like to go out, drive into the city, you know, park their car somewhere, go through traffic and then end up buying Ata Chal, Dal and all of that. So home delivery or all this was a genuine pain point that uh, a large number of uh, reasonably well-off customers had in urban setups in India. And this was a problem that big baskets really solved. The question is, you know, how quickly will this company turn profitable and what are the economics of this business? I think it's up to the founders and the leadership team to figure out. So, For example, for a company like Big Basket, this is a very thin margin business. So there is no room for, you know, any kind of extra expenses, expenses and frills that customers don't value or care for. So this is a company which is to be built around optimizing efficiencies every day. It's a bit of a boring business to build, but then you have to keep on optimizing, scraping the bottom of the barrel for any unnecessary costs. So that's the way this company would eventually become profitable and scale. But the product market fit to me was there from day one. Now, if you take a different company like a Zepto or a Blinkit, to me, the product market fit is missing from day one. So this company, whatever it does, these two companies, whatever they do in terms of, you know, trying to scale, will never ever be able to scale in a sustainable way because to start with they were not solving a real problem. There is no real need for a 10 minute delivery of grocery or a 15 minute delivery of grocery. So eventually they will make it very difficult. It'll be very difficult for them to make this work out. So I think, you know what, if you are a startup that has got your product market fit right, then you can figure out, you know, how to build and scale. You could choose to, for instance, say that we will grow up the top line for a couple of years or for some years. We will, for example, you know, induce changes in consumer behavior by giving discounts and cashbacks and not focus on profitability. But as we scale at some point of time, we will also begin to focus on profitability by taking away some of those discounts and cashbacks and getting back to market prices. So I think, uh, that's the way, you know, you can scale, but the starting point is get your product market fit right. That is you, you should be solving a real, real problem.
1: Solving the real problem. And in the case of big basket, you had kind of a template in the Amazon business, and you had some kind of a reference uh, point. How about for those organizations where the idea is solid, but there's no reference point?
0: No, not at all. There's no reference. Amazon is not a reference point for Big Basket at all. Because mm-hmm. Amazon is, you know, has hundreds and thousands of suppliers, actually, lacks of suppliers in their platform. And they don't, you know, necessarily, you know, hold everything in inventory stock. So there are thousands of suppliers with whom they collaborate. And for your information, Amazon has tried to build the grocery business multiple times. Flipkart has tried to build the grocery business multiple times because grocery is the mother of all categories, all the categories, including electronics, books, you know, to sports equipment, to refrigerators, all put together is much smaller than grocery. So Amazon and Flipkart have tried to build the grocery business and just have failed. Because building grocery is very different from selling televisions and cell phones, um, you know, uh, on the net. So they have not been successful. There has been absolutely no model. I think Big Basket has been probably the first successful role model in the world. Maybe Instacart, you know, is um, also a successful role model. And uh, in the UK, I think you have Okado, which is doing something like this, which is also successful. For example, there was... uh, Another company, I'm trying to recall, remember that name of this company, which was an utter failure when it tried to enter the grocery. But two other role models, Instacart for me and for example, um, you know, Okado in the UK are reasonably successful as well, like Big Basket. But Amazon wasn't a role model at all. Now coming to your question about wherever there's no reference, what do you have to do? So I think, uh, you know, wherever you have no reference, you have to ask yourself, am I solving a real problem? Is this a genuine customer pain point? You know, can these people, customers live without me? How is the problem currently being solved? Am I solving the problem in a much more efficient way, much more effective way? So if the answers to all those questions are positive. Then you don't need a reference. Why do you need a reference? So references don't are really not helpful in building a business. I think references are good. Probably, you know, that's one more indication that you can build a sound business. But you should ask all the fundamental questions, which is, am I solving a real problem? Is there a customer need? Will they pay me for this? How is the problem currently being solved? Is my method of solving the problem far better than the current method? And if the answers to all those questions are yes. Then I'm sure you know, you're all set to go.
1: So we are talking with Hari, uh, ex-HRO of uh, Big Basket and the author of many, many books and uh, angel investor, uh, co-founder of Asda. So we'll talk about leadership. So we discussed about what, what does it take for a successful startup? On similar lines, what defines leadership in the current and future world scenario? Whereas this It's no longer a UCA world. It's beyond UCA world as well. So what, what leadership traits define the world that we are about to face, Hari?
0: No, I, I don't know at all on, on this question, uh, Srikant, because, uh you know, it almost looks like, uh, you know, every generation this question is asked, which is, you know, the world is changing. The world is changing much faster than, you know, it we were used to. So therefore, what are some of the new leadership traits? I really don't think that uh, leadership traits uh, keep changing with time. I think good leadership traits will always endure. A good design will always endure. A chair and a table have been around for you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years, and there has been no fundamental changes to the design of a chair or a table. So I think good things are always going to last. And leadership that was relevant uh, 2,000 years back, it continues to be relevant today, except that the form and shape it might take, the tools that people use may be slightly different. But uh, uncluttered thinking, for example, has been something which is very important to, uh, today. It was always important long time back ability to motivate and inspire people and you know, Alexander the Great could not have you know come all the way up to India you know conquered um, you know Persia and Afghanistan and gone through all those difficult journeys unless he was able to motivate a bunch of ragtag troops uh, from Greece to come along with his with him in on his journey and share his vision so that continues to be important today also i really don't think that you know leadership traits uh, you know keep changing with time woka world to me that's all of jargon and nothing more than that so i think basic leadership traits is about leading people it's about motivating inspiring people getting them to join your your journey with a sense of vision with a sense of ability to with your ability to execute stuff thinking with utmost clarity i think those things don't change with time
1: That's a good call out, Hari. Uh, I think the fundamentals needs to be strong and the fundamentals is what defines uh, leadership in the current state future. Yeah, in
0: fact, I will uh, reframe the question as slightly. Instead of what is changing, I would say, let's focus on what is enduring when it comes to leadership because in trying to spend time on what is changing, which is so little, we lose track of what is enduring and what's important and what will not change over, you know, decades and probably even centuries. That's something that we should think about and continue to reinforce
1: with people. Having said that, I think where I'm coming from is there a couple of dimensions that is more front and center now than at any time in the history of uh, leadership or management. Some of them are, say, the entire climate change that is impacting the world and the role the leader needs to play. The mental health crisis that is happening, particularly the acceleration of the post-pandemic the world. So given that context, how do you see some of the traits that needs to develop or some of the existing traits that need to sharpen.
0: Yeah, undoubtedly, I said the context of leadership is changing. The way Alexander fought his war will not be the way we will fight our wars. You know, technology has changed. The problems that we're trying to solve are changing. Climate change is suddenly, for example, important. But, you know, whatever is leadership which can get people to rally around climate change will not be very different from whatever it takes to rally people around some other bigger causes. There have been equally good number of big causes throughout history. So whatever it took people to rally around to those problems, solving those problems is not very different from the way what it takes to rally people around climate change. And climate change is to me an extremely complex subject for the simple reason that it impacts different people in different ways. The stakes for different people are different. For example, upwardly mobile people in countries like India or any other you know developing country where you know people are aspiring for a slightly higher standards of living they're coming from the lowest rung of the socioeconomic economic pyramid and are climbing upwards if you tell them you know please stop consuming plastic please stop consuming you know fossil fuels don't buy a car they will laugh at you because for them climate change is irrelevant for them climbing up the social socioeconomic economic ladder is far more important so i think different people in the world see climate change differently their stakes are different their perspectives are different and therefore getting them to all collaborate is not very easy. So I think you need to find solutions without looking for, you know, 100% collaboration. And I say that, you know, if you are operating at a level of, an, you know, United Nations or the, you know, president or prime minister of India, America, then the kind of consensus you need to build around climate change is going to be very difficult. But if you're operating at much lower levels when it comes to climate change, about how do you dispose of, you know, commingled plastic waste, how do you solve for the problem of, you know, deforestation, then the problem slightly become simpler. So I think uh, climate change is extremely complex and we cannot assign, you know, what is the leadership which is required, you know, to address issues about climate change because climate change itself is at operating at different levels.
1: So it is contextual, it changes, the narrative changes basis, the role, the situation that one is in. Yes. And given all of this, uh, Hari, what are some of the practices that you recommend for folks to stay ahead of the curve, to stay relevant?
0: To stay relevant and staying ahead of the curve, I think there is only one formula to me, which is that uh, you need to figure out your true strengths and true calling. What are you really good at? If you don't figure that out, then, you know, come what may, you will never be able to stay ahead of the curve. So I think it's important for you to figure out who are you, what are your strengths, what do you think is your meaning? The word meaning appears, you know, to me a little exotic. People will even ask the question what is the meaning of meaning. I would say don't bother about meaning or purpose. Just figure out what are your core strengths, what do you really enjoy doing, what do you think is your calling. Around some of those, you have to build, you know, some skills. And those are what will help you go through the ups and downs of life. I've always said, you know, all of us and each of us have certain anchors in life. We need to discover what those anchors are, because those anchors are what will take you through your different phases of life. I can illustrate that with an example. And the only way to illustrate that is using my own example. Because otherwise, if I don't illustrate it with an example, it looks like almost theory. So, for example, for me, there are three or four core anchors. The first anchor in my life has been curiosity. I am terribly, terribly curious. I have a childlike curiosity about everything. I try to get to the root cause. I do, you know, 20 times a Google search every day. I try to understand many, many uh, things that I encounter and on a range of topics. So curiosity is one of my anchors. It has been, it has taken me through my ups and downs and I will use it wherever I go. The second, you know, anchor of mine, is ability to connect the dots ability to spot patterns you know ability to see the big picture in every situation ability to anticipate what will happen five steps down the road so i can see five steps ahead of me whereas sometimes people are just going step by step i'm able to spot that what might happen at the end of step five so this is a core strength of mine the third curve's core strength of mine is probably ability to communicate ability to tell a story and ability to explain very difficult concepts in a manner that, uh, you know, anyone would understand, even if a person is unfamiliar with the domain, should be able to understand. So demystify, simplify complex ideas in a manner that anyone can understand is core strength of mind. And it, it boils down to even writing. So, for example, ability to do that in written form or in verbal form. So these are my anchors. When I was in school, these anchors helped me do what I did. When I started my career, middle of my career, when I moved from engineering to human capital, when I moved from a large company context to a startup context, when I moved from a consumer internet company to Artha School for entrepreneurship, so all of these transitions, these were my four anchors that have, you know, stood by me all along. I've never bothered, you know, to really find out: should I learn Excel? Should I learn digital marketing skills? Should I learn about artificial intelligence? Should I think about how to figure, understand how Python really works? I've just figured out that these are the four anchors of my life and I will apply them in different forms wherever, you know, whatever I I do in life. So I think you need to figure out or one needs to figure out what those core anchors in your life are. If you can't get that right properly, then I think there's nothing, you know, really worth thinking about. Should I learn AI to stay relevant? Should I learn about big data? Those are all, you know, superficial.
1: Interesting. And that figuring out anchors comes from a point of self-assessment self-evaluation Correct. mentoring coaching how do one go about doing that if you're still figuring out what that okay, would a very like?
0: simple framework to do this it's not very difficult it's not rocket science at all so for example what has given you success so far ask yourself this question and answer this honestly why when have people come to you time and again what kind of problems have they come to you with what kind of feedback have you got what do people say that you are awesome at And they come to you for those awesome things. And for other situations, they don't come to you. So you should be able to figure out, irrespective of whether you're a student, you're early in your career or late in your career, middle of your career, what has given you success so far? What do people respect you for? What do people say you're awesome at? What do you yourself feel you're awesome at? So that's called S, which is, you know, self-awareness. What has given you success? S is for success. The second is, sometimes all of us instinctively get drawn towards a certain set of things for example i instinctively get drawn towards solving problems i instinctively get drawn towards situations which will help me you know figure out what is the big picture help help me figure out a set of patterns for example so I tend to get drawn towards those kind of activities instinctively. I get drawn towards speaking, for example, in a forum. If somebody tells me, "Speak about a book of your choice in six minutes," the five hundred book of your choice, I would raise my hand and say, "Yes, I'll. Pro- I can talk about it." So I keep getting drawn towards. What kind of activities do you get drawn towards? That's called instinct. The other is when you're doing the things that you're really good at, you lose a sense of time and you feel a sense of happiness inside you. You lose, you know, a sense of everything else around the world. So that's called growth. When you're doing something, you're enjoying every moment of it. That's growth. And the last is, you feel the need for doing something like this again and again and again. So what do you feel the need to do again and again and again? So I think this is a very simple framework. If you use, you can figure out what your, you know, anchors in life are.
1: That's a science framework. Yeah, yeah. Great. So you did touch upon your love for writing, your love for speaking. So definitely something for us to kind of talk about is in no time, you went on from zero to eight books and still counting. How Mm -hmm. did you channelize the author in you? How did you kind of turn out to be that prolific writer that you are today? And what insights our listeners can draw from your latest book, Winning Middle India? Uh, Just a crux of that.
0: Yeah. So I would say, you know what? Sometimes it happens in life that certain strengths of yours do not find an outlet for a very long time in your life you can go through decades and certain one or two of your strengths which you are amazingly good at there is no outlet so for me also in some ways there was no outlet for my ability to think with clarity and communicate with clarity that outlet came through a you know chance event which is somehow i began writing on linkedin People began to appreciate it. They felt that my writings were authentic, very practical, down to earth, bereft of jargon, bereft of uh, it was not academic, if you will. So that motivated me to write a book, and Penguin decided to publish that. And after that, it was no looking back. So I think uh, all of us need to just be a little lucky as well to be able to find an outlet for one of our strengths. So for me, once the first book was published, then I keep get kept getting new ideas and kept uh, writing. And uh, that was uh, it, I would say. Coming to winning Middle India, I think through multiple conversations with my good friend and colleague um, Bala Srinivasa, we had multiple conversations about where India was going, what kind of problems in India are being solved, you know, how easy or difficult it is to solve some of these problems. We all understood that uh, in the first wave of entrepreneurship that started sometime in two thousand and eight with the setting up of the uh, company like Flipkart. Then you had many, many, many uh, companies, startups in India attempting to solve India's problems. But we quickly realized, me and Bala, that most of these founders, many of the unicorns that have got built so far, have focused on, you know, solving the problems of the uppermost 15 million families in the socioeconomic pyramid. We felt, you know what, there are about 70 million people there. We felt, you know, those are relatively easier problems to solve. Now, what about the problems of the next 400 million Indians who don't have paying capacity? You know, the top 70 million consumers in India are money rich and time poor, which is they look for convenience, whereas the next 400 million Indians are time rich and money poor. So what kind of problems can you solve for them? What do they look for in the solutions? How do you gain their trust? How do you design your products and build for them? So those we felt are very different from the way products are designed and built for the top 70 million consumers. And we also realized that, uh, you know, things are changing on the ground in India and many Entrepreneurs from tier three, tier four towns are coming, you know, they're very confident about themselves. They are able to understand the needs of the next 400 million consumers in India very well because they have been part of uh, those communities themselves. And we felt that this is a mega trend and this is a
1: story worth telling. And Harry, on that line, what does it take for India to be a powerhouse of startups?
0: (laughs) That's a very tough question to answer. I think it's I can give you very simplistic answers. But the more you think about it, uh, you realize that simplistic answers don't really work well. So I think um, India has uh, already become a powerhouse for startups. We are probably after the us and uh, china the third biggest startup ecosystem in the world and israel is actually quite close behind so third biggest we are already we've got hundred, built 100 unicorns i think funding winter has also exposed the underbelly of the startup ecosystem which is that just by funding you know startups you're not going to build sustainable long-term profitable companies so i think some of those lessons are also out there so i think uh how The ecosystem collectively learns that building a startup is not a glamorous business, building a long-term profitable company is difficult. Not all businesses can be bankrolled and fueled by VC money. Because every entrepreneur now, one of the first questions is how do I raise my, you know, how do I raise funding? That's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is how do I, what problem am I solving? Is it a good business to build? Do I even need money? Can I not make the business profitable from day one and grow slowly and sustainably? So I think uh, the startup ecosystem is learning some of these lessons. And to me, these lessons endure and get remembered for a longer period of time. India will continue to be home to you know many, many great startups. And I think um, we also need good role models. What happens in high growth phases is that sometimes we end up with the wrong kind of role model. I won't take names, but I think uh, we all know what kind of People who have not built businesses the right way, who have had very serious governance issues. Some of them in the short to medium term have become role models by the way they speak and engage with the social media and the kind of tweets they put out. But I think some of that will also change. Um, Maturing, getting the right role models is also a very important phase uh, of, you know, maturing of a startup ecosystem.
1: And turning back on your uh, role as an author. What is same and what is different being an author and being a co-author?
0: See, I have chosen to very carefully co-author all my books. I have worked with uh, the co-author that really shared my passion uh, for that topic or the theme on which we were to write. Sometimes my co-author, you know, was more passionate than me about a topic and I uh, found I was discovered by my co-author. Sometimes I discovered my co-author. Both the things happened. So, for example, Swati Jena, who, you know, is my co-author for this book uh, called Diversity Beyond Tokenism. Why being politically correct is not good for anyone. That was an idea that she was very passionate about. And, you know, uh, she and I had spoken about this topic a couple of times and she just felt that, you uh, Our thoughts are quite in alignment and she just felt that I could probably be a good co-author. She wrote to me, you know, an email she wrote me and asked her, this is the topic she's planning to write a book about. Will I want to be a co-author with her? In 10 minutes, my response has been, the topic is exciting, let's do it. So, you know, my decisions have always been, you know, many times gut decisions very quick. I don't, um, you know, spend time over analyzing stuff. In 10 minutes, I told her yes and the book happened. It's, uh, by the way... Uh, it's one of my all time favorite books as well. I loved um, the way we ourselves wrote it. I'm happy about ourselves. Uh, I can say that with a lot of pride because it's a very difficult topic. Many people have, you know, brushed aside the difficult uh, conversations that are essential to get clarity on the topic. Whereas we, you know, dealt with all the difficult issues. We didn't take politically correct positions. You know, we took whatever positions were pragmatic uh, and in the interest of moving society in the right direction. So, at places we might have come across as a bit unpopular and politically incorrect but we felt that was the right thing to do as well so co-authoring a book uh, is important for me because for me i don't like to do anything alone you know doing something with a co-author gives you somebody with whom you can brainstorm somebody with whom you can play brain tennis somebody who, who could be a sounding board you could run an idea past them And sometimes when you are lazy to write, the other person can push you and when the other person is lazy, you can push the other person. When the other person is stuck, you can help the person come unstuck or whatever and vice versa. So I enjoyed co-authoring. I've never authored a book all by myself and I don't think I ever will.
1: That's an interesting take. And as an author, how do you respond to setbacks? Not all books would kind of uh, hit the top of shelves. There will be some instances where the book will not do as much as you expected it to do, or vice versa. How do you respond to these kind of uh, situations? Not at all.
0: I don't respond. I don't even think about that. So, for mm-hmm. example, uh, uh, you know, if a book does not do that well, so be it. I think we took a bet, wrote it, and the publisher took a bet, published it. It did well, didn't well, do not well, not a problem.
1: Getting the message out there was more important yes, than how the any day, any day, any day. So we are uh, in the power of three round talking to Hari TN. The first of the power of three round is Hari, what are three routines that is unique to you?
0: No, no, I don't have any routine that's unique to me.
1: If there is an advice, three advice that you would give to an older self.
0: Yeah. Enjoy life. Stop judging uh, others. Uh, let other people be who they are. You should be happy with who you are. You know, don't uh, you know misinterpret people. Don't get upset with them unnecessarily. Lead a happy life. Let people be who they are. You should be who you are. Be liberal in your thinking and increase your tolerance levels to all kinds of things.
1: Wonderful. Are three trends that shaping
0: the marketplace, Hari? I really don't know of any major trend. I mean, the one that stands out which everybody talks about is uh, artificial intelligence, though I have no clue. As to, you know, how it is going to evolve because AI has gone through multiple phases of hype only to let us down. And sometimes when there's a hype, we all think, you know, AI is here to change this world. AI is going to change the very, very fundamentally significantly. And sometimes it could be so damaging that we should stop, uh, you know, all kinds of AI work for the next six months. We should get the government to put guardrails. So I think this is all hype to me when we developed, you know, atomic weapons, when we developed nuclear power, when we developed you know, fossil fuels, car engines, we did so many things in the past, we you know, which were far more, more disruptive with far more negative, you know, effects or uh, consequences of misuse. We lived with those, nothing happened, nothing will happen with the AI as well. So I, I can't think of any trend, you know, I mean, trends are all what we are seeing. I can't think of anything which is beyond what is obvious or or whatever has already taken shape.
1: Which of those three startups you think that this is the startup to watch out for? Or these are the founders to watch out for?
0: One startup that comes to mind is, for example, a startup called Entry, E-N-T-R-I, which is uh, an edtech company. And to me, many edtech companies are not solving real problems. There are a few exceptions. Simply Learn is one of them. Entry is the other one. Both to me are solving real problems in the areas of education. So these two startups uh, I feel positive about. Uh, Simply Learn is far more advanced, uh, far older also. Entry is relatively new. And he, I, much younger. And I admire the founder who is a person called Hisam, Mohammed Hisamuddin. He's also called Hisam. It's a great uh, startup. I think uh, this will go places.
1: Three book recommendations that Hari has for our listeners. I'm a very unconventional person
0: when it comes to books. For example, I hardly read books on leadership. So if you're expecting books on leadership, then you know, you're asking the wrong person. For example books that a book i read much a long time back but i continue to be fascinated and reread that from time to time i read was uh, this book called the selfish gene by richard dawkins richard dawkins has written multiple books uh, the selfish gene and the blind watchmaker i liked both of them i also liked uh, you know Pranelal's two books uh Indica and the virus both of them i liked i, I liked rupa pai's uh, carbon park uh, for instance i loved that book I uh, read this book called, um, recently, Ray Dalio's book uh, uh, about the changing world order. I like that book as well. Then I recently happened to read uh, the story of the Marathas or the history of the Marathas. I like that book as well. So, yeah, I like uh, to read books on science. I like to read books on history. I also like... uh, Select biographies, not biographies of leaders, leaders, but uh, biographies of interesting ad- of people who went on interesting adventures. So a biography, of, for example, Shackleton fascinated me. Biography
1: of Lincoln fascinated me. So that was a power of three section. Hari, thank you so much for uh, taking it on. As we come closer to the home run, a couple of uh, questions before we call it as wraps. In your own words, the importance of journey versus destination and importance of uh, mentors, the importance of all of this.
0: Yeah, so I'm a believer that there are largely two types of individuals. The first category are those who are the destination types. And the second are a category who are both of the journey types. And ultimately, it's not extreme. There are people, it's a continuum. There'll be some people who are partially journey, partially. It's a continuum. But uh, the extremes are defined by a journey-oriented folks and a destination-oriented folks. I'm more towards the journey-oriented uh, folks. I, for me, you know, outcomes just are outcomes. I don't really plan or aim a lot on outcomes. I aim a lot for doing things that I like to do at that moment and gradually discovering new things that I like to do. In the process, I might hit some outcomes, but those were not what I look for. I just look for that you know, every year, every moment, uh, every decade being very fulfilling for me. So I'm much more of a journey person.
1: And for somebody who's wearing multiple hats, how do you time box for yourself? What's what some of the practices that you can share that, that the listeners can take and implement in their own lives or careers? Yeah.
0: So what I did was that, you know, many things. I think one of the things is, uh, you know, uncluttered thinking. I realized that a lot of time is spent by people in not defining in because they don't define the problem very cor- uh, correctly. So, for example, like you could find a group of people sitting together for two weeks and trying to solve a problem. And many times I have been able to step in and been able to resolve and bring clarity that provides right direction in probably half an hour in a 30-minute meeting. So I think I'm able to think very clearly as a result of which many of my things, you know, I don't take time to do. I do them very quickly as a result of which I get a lot of time to do other things. So when I was in Big Basket, for example, I focused on building a very good team and I allowed the team to do the work that they should be doing. I didn't step down and try to do their work. Contrary to that, I allowed my team to step up and begin to do my work. And I put them right in front. I allowed them to take decisions, I allowed them to make mistakes. I actually didn't go and help them at, at the slightest trip up they must have had. So I think it gave me a lot of time, allowed people to do their jobs. I genuinely believed I should step up rather than step down. and Therefore, I began discovering new things to do and allowed people to do their jobs. So I thought very clearly when teams came to me with a problem that they've been grappling with for a very long time, all it took was a 20-minute, 30-minute meeting to clear the air, clear the cobwebs and get the right direction. It's a combination of uncluttered thinking, and allowing people to do their jobs and holding them accountable.
1: And more important also giving that empowerment, like you said. Yes, yes. Wonderful. Harry, this has been some fantastic conversation, great insights. This show is all about creating ripples of inspiration. For all the listeners out there, what would be your Inspire Someone Today message?
0: Enjoy your life, uh, you know, do things that uh, really give you happiness and pleasure. And I think you're all set.
1: Okay, on that note, do work that matters. That's the sage words from uh, Hari TN. Hari, thank you so much for being in the on the show. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at Inspire Someone Today Podcast at the gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what to listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the inspire someone today podcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikanth, your host, signing off, and until next time, keep inspiring.